Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book today tackles a very difficult subject, but simplifies it in a beautiful fashion. It's titled, How to Win in Every Scenario, Using Scenario Planning to Create Win-Win Solutions in Ukraine and in Other Complex Situations. Our author who joins me from Arizona, from the Phoenix area, is Dr. Ram Gayoso. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you very much, Jay. Uh, Dr. Gayoso, what is this scenario planning idea? Where did this concept come from? Well, Jay, this was actually invented in the 1960s, more exactly in 1961, by a man named Herman Kahn. And what he did is he talked about, or he said, thinking about the unthinkable. So he was the first person to discuss the term of nuclear war. And he helped us understand no one can win that kind of war. And he used this very interesting technique called scenario planning, which is basically a, a version of screenplay or storytelling. And the way it goes is imagine you're trying to watch a new movie that comes on on the, on, on the cinema, and you watch a trailer. But of course, you just see the trailer on TV. In order to understand what happens in the story or to realize what is the end of the story, you have to buy a ticket and go to the movies, of course. So this technique helps you envision the possible or potential futures or the endings of the story. And if we can envision the end of the story, a couple of things may happen, Jay. One is you may like the ending or you may not like the ending. If you really like that ending, you should work really, really hard to make sure that thing materializes. And if you really do not like that ending, Jay, then you have to work ten times as harder to prevent it from happening. Dr. Gauso, you are a Ph.D., you are a, an educator. Part of this, I'm sure, is part of your training or instruction or teaching process. You talk about several nations around the world, including Germany and Russia and, of course, the Ukraine. What is your thought there? What, are you, what scenario are you painting in your book? Yes, see, what I was trying to help people realize or understand is the different sides on this conflict, and more specifically, the Ukraine crisis that is unfolding right now. So we have Russia on, on one hand, and we have the European Union on the other hand, and the U.S. is just coming along. My, my perspective is we're trying to help them become a more democratic and more open society, and I think we have a little bit of experience to share on that one. But in between those countries, of course, Germany is the largest economy in Europe, and Russia on the other side, they're somewhat struggling over control of, of the Ukraine. And my perspective is I think we, should, we could have done a little bit better in terms of uh, understanding my book. Half of the book is about tolerance, increasing tolerance or helping people think about the others from the other perspective, not so much as from our perspective. So my perspective with this scenario is to help people understand the other side first and look for solutions where we can both win, not one win and the other loses. You, know. you also tackle difficult subjects like uh, stem cell research and renewable energy. What other subject matters are covered in your book? 
Well, I use those three. So I use the the crisis in Ukraine, which is a, a big war a conflict. I use the stem cell research problem, which is basically an ethics problem or a bioethics problem, to be more exact. And then the renewable energy problem or the scenario is renewable energy has the potential, or we all, all believe it has the potential to help us alleviate global warming. But I think we could do a little bit better in terms of implementing that one. So those are the three key examples. You also, I would, uh, I guess, describe your book, your style, as somewhat of a research book. Would you say it's difficult to understand, or is this something for the general public? No, it is something written for the general public in mind. What I want to do as an educator, Jay, my real objective is to take a complex issue like that and really turn it into plain English. And that's really my goal with the book, is to get people to use this technique, which is really, really powerful, to help them envision their future. And if we can envision our futures, Jay, we can make them better. I use three examples, but of course, there are many more potential applications, including for one's personal life. You also can apply these concepts and precepts for business. Yes, of course, for business. The most important or the most powerful example of scenario planning is in, actually in business. It was Shell Oil Company. In the early 1970s, they used the method, and they could envision the oil crisis of 1972-1974, and then the discovery of oil outside of OPEC land, so the 1980 crisis. So they used the technique extensively, and they went from number 14 on Fortune 500 ranking to number two. So it is very powerful. And it's more than just theoretical concepts. It actually is something that can have a practical side to it. Yes, and that's why you wrote this book. You know, as an economist, I think my duty, and as an educator, is to help people look at those techniques, and not just from the theoretical perspective, but actually from some way, or or help them envision a way to use it in practical applications for everyday life problems, and to tackle big world problems such as the ones I mentioned. You also refer to this as a five-step program. Is this one that will require radical thinking change, or how would you describe it? No, not really. I, I thought about the five-step program because it's uh, an easy way, an easy approach to think about scenario planning. So basically, I start from the very simple perspective, which is the most important asset we have in a company or anywhere else is actually people. So we start from our skills and abilities, and I build from that. First, we make the team or the composition of the team based on skills. And then we look for the skills we need. Depending on the problem we're trying to solve, we need different skills. So we need to find people with those kinds of skills first. Then we collect data about the competitive environment, so what are others doing in the same field. Then we collect data about the microeconomic environment, which is what's going on in our economy, how is GDP going, etc. Then we create what I call the packaging phase, where we put together story. Scenarios are compelling stories. They're just like a romance or a war movie. They have a theme. They have a specific, a specific place where they unfold, and then they're the key agents. And the fifth step is how to add value. So we wouldn't do any exercise in the business world or for ourselves unless we can show we can add value. So the fifth step is helping us think and understand how can we add value. You know, Jay, the real situation is 
everybody can bring a problem to the boss, right? right? Oh, boss, I have a problem. And with this technique, I help people think about solutions. Yeah, we may have a challenge or an opportunity, but we can say, hey, boss, here's a way that we can win. Here's a way we can win the market, we can you know, be successful in a situation, or prevent something bad from happening. You have uh, managed to pen 237 pages, which is not a, an extensive read. It is very detailed. But how long did it take to complete your book? Uh, actually, um, just a couple of months. I've been thinking a, a lot about this you know, throughout my career, and I just wanted to make sure I put it together in words. <laughs> I write a lot, and I took my notebook with me, so I said I had a lot of thoughts and ideas already written. You have quoted Churchill, and one of his quotations was, success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. That's tough to do. It is, especially in the world of today, right? We are faced with so many challenges, you know, in this country, outside this country. Of course, there's the Ebola problem coming up right now, right? But we cannot give up. You know, this country is so wonderful, so beautiful, and, and so blessed because people here never do give up. So even though Churchill said it, I think it's very adequate for us. We never give up. <laughs> it is non-generational. It, it, it actually works in every generation, doesn't it? It does. Well, I'm somewhat biased. I think the, the older generations did, did a little bit better. You know, Tom Brokaw's book is amazing. I don't know if you've read it before. Yes, I've heard of it. I have not read it in its entirety, but it is a, a book that deals with the greatest generation, and that is exactly. a generation that is prior to where we're living today. Different perspective, different viewpoint on life, and perhaps they take life a little more seriously, but in a simplified manner, they approach challenges and overcame them. So I think we have to do better in our generation. I agree with that. If you were to introduce your book to our listeners in a couple of sentences and get them interested in getting their very own copy of this 237-page masterpiece, how would you do so? I would say if you really want to, you know, better your life in one aspect or another, whether it's business or some issue that you're dealing on your own, or even if you want to think about the big world problems, this is the way to go. Uh, scenario planning is a wonderful process, and it's easy, and I have a very methodical way of approaching it, so it should be very successful. Were there some uh, difficulties in remembering all of the complex issues that you deal with in the classroom and uh, translating them and transferring them into print? Not really. I think that's the work of the educator. We have to translate things that are very complex into something that's very palatable. And it only took, how long did you say? Just a couple of months. Just it a couple of good. months. That's amazing. I, yeah, I love writing and reading. So. <laughs> Is this the first uh, publication that you have uh, put to print? In in a book format, yes. Book format. I've been writing and publishing in academia for many years. There, I'm sure, are other books that deal with this particular concept is your book is your book different from from others in the marketplace yes because what i'm trying to do is i i'm going back to the origin which is herman Kahn's original work and what i'm trying to do is not to make something complicated or something theoretical but rather something applied you know jay i really decided to write this book because i teach mbas and i teach you know other you know just graduate level students and i wanted for them to 
really pick up on this. So I said, I need to be succinct. I have to give them a little bit of theory, but it has to be really applied. And I couldn't find anything in the market that had those features, and I decided, well, if it's not there, I will do it. Doctor, I mentioned how colorful the cover is on this book. There must be a story behind that. Tell us what that is. Yes, there is, Jay. What I wanted to do or accomplish with the cover was to communicate a thought or an idea. So you see a flower, right? If you look at the, the cover, there's a flower. Yes. And those, those colors are particular to Ukraine. In the center of, of the flower, the stem actually is a national symbol of the Ukraine. So the national symbol of the Ukraine is inside a flower. So what I was trying to say there is Ukraine will bloom again. They will be successful. They will find democracy that, that they so hard are fighting for, right? Yes. And at the bottom, you see two petals with two Ukrainian words that mean dreaming of peace or peace dreaming. So my message is, yes, they, they are dreaming. They're trying to reconstruct their society right after the war. The war is still going on. They're dreaming of peace. I think they will accomplish it. They will bloom again. And at the foot of the flower, you see four children. And they're carrying the colors of Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, and European Union. And what I have there is they have, they're holding hands. And right on top of them, there are actually two hands folded or holding each other, and that means unity. So it's my message of hope for them, that they will be successful, that they will bloom again. But in order to accomplish that, we need more unity. Wonderful imagery. The title again is How to Win in Every Scenario, Using Scenario Planning to Create Win-Win Solutions in Ukraine and in other complex situations. Our guest author, Rom Gayoso. Sir, where do we get copies of your book? Well, in Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Amazon.com as well. Do you have a website personally that you share additional thoughts? I do. It's Phoenix and Economist uh, on Blogspot. So I have a blog and I talk to people about many different issues. Wonderful. The spelling of Gayoso is G-A-Y-O-S-O. For those of you who like to do online searches, the first name R-O-M. Dr. Gayoso, thank you for joining me today. I'm assuming because you enjoy what you're doing, you may share additional stories or additional techniques in the future. Is there another book in the works? Yes, there is. I got a lot of people asking me to adapt a book for self-help. So that's what I'm working on, on personal problems and situations like, you know, weddings and uh, conflicts, personal conflicts. And I'm trying to think of ways to adapt this, the scenario planning and help us think about those complex situations that exist in our you know, inner life and make them more palatable or easier, easier to work on. Interesting book and concept, How to Win in Every Scenario. Dr. Rom Gayoso has been my guest. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you so much, sir. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Fly Away Free, penned by former educator and late author Ann Turner Coppola. She is being represented today by her husband, John Coppola. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Jay. And just for our listeners, I will mention that Anne uh, passed away in 2012. This is one of three books that you discovered she had written. You also are an author to some degree. You were writing a technical journal, and Anne wrote this Fly Away Free, which uh, turned out to be uh, a little over 140 pages or so, and it tells the story of an older lady named Tessie Farrell. John, share for our listeners just a little of the background story of this novel that Anne penned. Anne herself, uh, she was one of seven children. Her mother uh, was married at 17 to a, a, a much older man. Anne's father was in his 40s when uh, he married uh, Anne's mother. They had seven children. Anne was the favorite daughter of her father. And her father passed, died at when she was 10 years old. At 12 years old, Anne's mother, who still had to cope with raising uh, many children, was an, uh, she had a, 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 she went into depression and she required hospitalization. Anne was 12 years old when she and her younger brother were uh, placed in a foster home. And that's where Anne grew up uh, and went to Plattsburgh, uh, where her foster uh, parents were, foster home was, and she went to a, a Catholic girls' school. Hmm. And uh, as a student, Anne was a, a, a very intelligent young lady. She was valedictorian of her class when she graduated in high school. And she was also, uh, she wrote a local uh, an article for the uh, local press Republican paper. Um, and when Anne graduated, she graduated with honors as valedictorian of her class. She received several scholarships to uh, attend college. Uh, that is where I met Anne in her first year of college. I was in the Air Force in Plattsburgh, and I met Anne, and we dated, and we were married uh, in 1958 when Anne was 19, and uh, Anne uh, was a teacher. She, she received her uh, bachelor's degree from State University of Albany in New York and her master's degree at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And uh, in her, uh, she taught uh, at the elementary, middle, and high school levels uh, in various schools as we journeyed south toward Florida. Mm -hmm. And we passed through, uh, we, we were in New Jersey for several years, 11 years, Atlanta for seven years, and then we moved to Florida. You finally made it. 
we finally made it to Florida. We were we were in Miami. We we lived 16 years in Miami, and then uh, we we made it here to uh, Sarasota, Florida. The dedication of her book gives some insight into uh, how and why these stories came to light. Uh, she dedicates it to you in her dedication to Fly Away Free. She says, For John, who gave you the most precious of gifts, love and time from 1993 to 1994. I was also writing a book. You were. And uh, during that two hours, she was writing books. This is a fascinating story by itself. This story that she has written, Fly Away Home, can you give us a sort of an outline of what the story is about and who the target audience is? Yes. The target audience are, uh, I, I'm, I am, uh, as an elderly senior myself, I, I, I can only guess, but I would, I, I feel that the uh, story uh, would appeal to children uh, uh, from maybe a 10 to 15 uh, years of age, 16 years of age, young adults, preschool, uh, preteens, and young teens. And the, the story is about an older woman living in the Miami Beach area who has her routine. She takes her dog for a walk. Uh, during her walk, she uh, encounters uh, uh, children who have uh, killed a nest of, of ospreys. And uh, uh, one of the ospreys, uh, a baby, uh, flies from the nest into the into uh, the water at Miami Beach, and uh, Tessie uh, uh, saves the osprey and takes the osprey home. Um, while after after uh, building a, a nest in, in a cage for the osprey, the, the hatchling. Uh, Tessie is overcome with, uh, uh, she's very tired from all of the activities of the morning. So she lies down to rest and uh, closes her eyes and falls asleep. And in her sleep, she's transported back uh, to her, her period of growing up in upstate northern New York. Uh, and she reminisces about... Uh, her experiences growing up on a dairy farm as a foster child. And that's, that's really, the bulk of the uh, story is really her uh, reminiscent, uh, reminiscences of uh, the older woman and is about Tessie and her growing up years. And and actually had written this from some personal experience. This, although it's a uh, fictional work, has uh, a, an element of truth in the story, doesn't it? Oh yes, I think it had a strong uh, uh, association with uh, uh, an unwanted <laughs> orphan child. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though Anne had a biological parents and she knew who they were, uh, she uh, much of her uh, young adult uh, period was spent in a foster home. So. I think Anne had a, a, a strong association with the heroine in her story. Uh, and Tessie Farrell uh, grew up 
uh, part of the story is is, is fantasy. Right. <laughs> as as uh, once the once the uh, Canadian geese hatchlings are are uh, are born, uh, in uh, nurtures them and raises them as ha- from hatchlings, and much of the uh, uh, from that period on. Uh, much of the story combines fantasy as well as fiction. <laughs> yes. Now, are there some exciting scenes? I, I noted one where young boy is uh, reaching up into the clubhouse or into the treehouse that's been built, and all of a sudden it falls apart and, and uh, you know dust and debris everywhere. Are there other exciting uh, uh, incidences in this book that will grab the attention of the reader, young reader? Well, when um, uh, on on the farm that Tessie grows up in, her her uh, her, uh, her her parents uh, are dairy farmers, and they also board horses. And uh, one of the horses boarded there belongs to a young man who uh, is a city boy. <laughs> who wants to enjoy some of the country mm-hmm. and, and horse riding. So uh, one of the scenes in the story is he arrives at the farm to break the horse into uh, uh, accepting a saddle and so he can ride. Uh, but not knowing how to handle the horse, uh, he comes First of all, he comes drunkenly to the uh, dairy farm, and he's going to teach the horse who's boss. Mm-hmm. So one of the uh, scenes in the book is uh, he tries to saddle the horse, which he's unable to do, and and uh, because he's unable to do it, uh, Tessie, a little girl of seven years old at that point, uh, is laughing at him while he while she's watching him do this, and enraged. You know, he's whipping the horse, but in, uh, as he uh, sees uh, he's making a fool of himself in front of a little girl, he, he raises the whip to Tessie, and he whips her. And uh, shortly after this, uh, they're, in, they're in the horse barn while he's, he's uh, trying to saddle the horse and unable to do so. He's uh, enraged. He's whipping the little girl. The little girl's father comes in and uh, sees him doing this, takes the whip from him, and questions why he's, you know, whipping a horse mm-hmm. and his daughter, who's, who's only a seven-year-old little girl. So that was one of the scenes in, uh, that I felt uh, was a, a, a high point in the early part of the story. Another was uh in there are several one of the in, the uh uh high points in terms of the pain that Tessie feels because she's uh she cannot understand why she's an unwanted child by her biological parents is her relationship with her cousin and and her cousin caroline uh uh at at a a dinner uh, at Caroline's house, where Tessie was invited for a sleepover, uh, Caroline takes money from her uh, father's jacket uh, because she wants to buy something. 
and uh, her father discovers the money missing and questions the two girls and uh, Tessie who has sworn that she will not tell on her cousin Caroline cannot ad admit uh, does not admit uh, that she knows uh, where the, who took the money so obviously uh, Caroline and her parents uh, Caroline's parents believe Caroline's story and suspect that uh, Tessie was the one who took the money. That is another uh, uh, incident in the uh, book that I felt I thought was very interesting and that would appeal very much to readers. And another would be the taunting she receives in by her classmates. Now, is uh, in spite of the fact that there are what you've just described, sort of sad and um, meaningful incidences that have happened, would you overall call this a fun story for someone to read? I would consider this story to be the kind of story uh, that brings a sense of reality into uh, young readers' lives, whether they, for most who, who would not understand what a young child would go through as an orphan, uh, but also at the end, I feel that uh, the, uh, the the sadness that may pervade part of the story uh, finds an, an uplifting ending, and and at the end of the story, I, I think uh, because Tessie, uh, in her uh, communications and her relationship with her classmates, finds acceptance by her classmates uh, because of something that she has done uh, in the main story of the book, and that is the raising of the uh, Canadian geese uh, from hatchlings and what, they, what she is able to do with the hatchlings. Uh, I mean, part of the fantasy for me when I was reading the story, Anne's story, was Anne carried me through the understanding that the hatchlings uh, uh, in 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 this fan, uh, fantasy that she created, felt that she might she was a parent to the hatchlings, and they followed her on command. They came running to her when they saw her and heard her, and they followed her when, <laughs> when she was walking through the pastures, and the picture in the book. Uh, uh, was done very nicely by Ex Libris uh, uh, artists, and it shows the the hatchling geese following <laughs> Anne, the little girl. The little girl, yes. As she's going through the pasture. Uh, it was very nicely done, but the ending of the book, I think, is, is very uplifting. Wonderful. And uh, I, I think that if there is sadness... And I, I believe there was sadness in the story, uh, and that, for me, was one of the uh, wonderful things about the story. It went through uh, periods of that young people go through, but not young people who are orphaned. Mm -hmm. and, it, it, and it helps to understand the pain that that young people who are orphans may go through. 
and life. And in, and, and, and in doing so, tells a wonderful story of redemption and a story that uh, is uplifting about the hatchlings and how they survive and how they become connected with the main character. Wonderfully said. The title of the book is Fly Away Free, the author, Ann Turner Coppola, and our guest has been her husband, John Coppola. Thank you, sir, for joining me. Where do we get copies of your book? Uh, Ex Libris. Uh, .com. It's available through Amazon.com. It's available through uh, bookstores. And uh, it's also available through uh, Ann Turner Coppola.com. And Coppola is spelled C-O-P-P-O-L-A. Thank yeah. you, John, for joining me today and sharing Ann's story. And thank you for uh, giving us insight into her life and also into the book she has created. Thanks you again. You're very welcome, Jay. Thank you for allowing me to to talk about Ann's story. My honor. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Light in Winter, A Mama's Prayer. Our author is O. Henderson, Jr., who is joining me from Michigan. Orzi, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. Pleasure to talk with you. As I mentioned, I have a slight interest in Michigan just on a personal level, but I wanted to talk to you specifically about your book. The cover is very wintry looking. It's white with snowflakes and everything is in blue. Share with my listeners the inspiration behind your story. This is a novel that is a fictional account, but it's uh, historical in nature. Tell us about it. Well, this was inspired by uh, by my own experience watching uh, my mother raise us by herself, and uh, so that um, <clears throat> that uh, uh, this was after uh, we were abandoned by my father when I was ten, and so it was uh, the, the cover was inspired by the fact that uh, at that early time when we were abandoned, it was, it was winter for us. And, but she became she became a, a light for us, a blanket of peace, and she she raised us to be a, a, a really sourceful uh, people. So uh, that, that inspired the cover story, the cover of the book, and the, yeah, I saw as I grew up, uh, uh, which were lights, and 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 in that community, uh, it was was inspired by those women that really made life. 
worthwhile uh, for us. And and is it set in Michigan or where? Well, the, the book is historically. The book deals with the with the uh, migration uh, after the Civil War, from you know from you know. But this book deals from the from the thirties until the end of the century. Uh, it's, it's migration from. Um, Missouri to New Jersey to Michigan, and uh, the people, black people following the work, and all the movements throughout the country. But this is there's a great migration going on. It deals with with the, with the lives of uh, of the Jeffersons, who are two people, two who are young family, who migrate uh, to the north uh, and the east for a better life. In addition to being an author, this is your first novel. You also have a uh, historical career as a physician. Yes, I am. Yes. Tell a little of that story. How did you become inspired to go to school and get that degree and uh, proceed to uh, become a successful physician? Well, actually, in, in my neighborhood where I grew up, uh, which was a very mixed neighborhood, uh, and and uh, there was a young doctor who came back from Pakistan. He was actually Dutch, and he had been living there with his family, and they moved into our neighborhood into his mother's old house. Uh, and uh, because they, they were young, they didn't have any money. They were just young doctors. And so I, saw, I watched him grow up. I watched him as I grew up. He lived in our neighborhood. I really admired him as a physician. His son and I became very good friends. So I, I this this man uh, became a very famous and renowned doctor. So I was able to watch him and admire him. And uh, as I grew up, and so I was very inspired by what I saw in doctor, the doctor in my neighborhood that had been a missionary doctor. A missionary doctor. Wonderful. Yeah, in Pakistan, yes. He was a plastic surgeon, became more famous at it. And uh, so I got to know him as a child, and and, uh, and uh, we never talked about medicine, but just watching his bearing, his his equanimity, his uh, just everything about him, made me want to think that's the thing to be, you know? So uh, he was a role model, I think, for me. When did you get the concept or the idea or the desire to write this book? Was this something that you had been carrying around with you for a number of years, or is this something that just recently came to you and you began to write? No, I um, I actually started thinking about it, oh, maybe 20 years ago, because uh, I read a book by Sam Levinson called Everything But Money, about, about a poor Jewish family, family being raised in Harlem. And, and 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 how they successfully did it without money, but just having great culture, great love for each other. And I was so inspired by the book, I thought, well, that, that's kind of like my family, you know? Even though there are troubles, we, we did very well, and we certainly uh, didn't have money, uh, but we had a lot of other things that really counted. So that, that inspired me to start thinking about it about 20 years ago. I start scribbling things down and, and, and began to read a lot more fiction because I had been, been a, mainly, mainly an essayist before that, and I had read a lot of uh, a lot of uh, autobiographies. But I, I began to read a lot more fiction and a lot more of classics, and began to study writing more. You uh, mentioned the idea of religion or faith. Is that important, or was that important in your upbringing? Oh, tremendously important. I mean, the 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 inspiration that, that I think I saw in the women uh, around us, because we were really raised by, in those days, neighborhoods were very strong. You we were raised by a village. And as our mother struggled, for example, as any other single mothers did in those days, uh, they were helped by the church, the neighbors. There was a tremendous amount of outpouring of love and support uh, for your behavior. 
and 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 so I think that the the uh, the, uh, the religious aspect was was the underpinning, and certainly all the religious holidays, which provided food and gatherings, and and uh, there was an example of how one should be, how one should live, and what what was important. So I think that the religious aspect of it not only speckled us with good foods and holidays, but and, but also literature. For example, I, I was very much in love with the. David and Jonathan stories as a boy, and, and mm-hmm. Solomon's wisdom, and, and so there's a lot of culture that religion brought, and a lot of good times too. And, and kids really look at good times, and I, I think it provided us a lot of good times and good eats also. <laughs> important part of the uh, of the church community is uh, dinner on the grounds, especially on Sunday afternoon, fried chicken and uh, mashed taters. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then, of course, you have church picnics. You have young, young people's picnics. You have all these different things that go on. And you have, you have, you have sometimes churches hosting other guests from out of town and special meals. And then, and there's lots of fellowship. So I think that that whole thing was a part of the culture, which actually spilled over into the neighborhood too. That that you know they knew. Uh, our people as church folk, because they knew there was a whole different culture there. Even though they interacted with it, they knew that that these people spent a lot of time at church, you know. <laughs> and I guess they were, they were wondering what how what did they get out of it because it's, they spent so much time there. And we did. Even the children spent a lot of time in church. You mentioned that being a village, a uh, community village, where the uh, ladies of the community looked out for everybody else's kids and uh, did the rod of correction. I'm sure. I'm certain in times Absolutely. when it was Everyone necessary. Looked out after everybody. And uh, you mean if you're older, you're the boss, you know. Right. And that's the way it worked. And know? there was respect, wasn't there? Oh yeah, certainly, certainly. Did that story come through in your novel? I'm sure it did. Oh, certainly. The, the, the book is really all about um, the village and about the the, the 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 spirit of the village, about the the migrants up from the north, uh, how they rally around this lady uh, who is struggling to. To, to raise her children not on welfare, but on uh, by her own by, by her own efforts and by their own efforts, and so it, it's a heroic novel in that, re- in that regard. Your story also takes place. Uh, does it begin in the uh, the beginnings of World War II, or is that uh, a mis- misunderstanding of your time frame when it begins? No, no. It, 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 it actually story begins. Uh, before the World War, World War II, World War II starts is is, is when they're migrating. For example, like uh, that's about in thirty seven, when they're they're migrating up there. Yes. And and when they get to to New Jersey, the war is already on. In fact, before they leave, there is some fighting in Europe before they actually leave for the north. Uh, yes. And and of course, by the time they settle in New Jersey, uh, there is there is a um, a uh, draft going on too. So yeah, it's 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 just it's sort of a pre World War Two, yes. The early early uh movements of World War Two is going on as they migrate. Your target audience, I'm certain that when you began to write this and tell this tale, you had someone in mind that you thought would be the ideal reader. Who would that be? I think I think it'd be a woman that would have lots of responsibility uh and that wanted to be a wise woman and uh, wanted some vision. So I think that, I think that, that women uh, that seek to read inspirational, inspirationally fiction, but, but really facts uh, about how to, how to, uh, to, um, to be a, a, a wise mother, 
this kind of thing. I think, I, I think a lot of it is, 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 is um, has to do with uh, the, the enlightenment, uh, and I think the, I think women tend to tend to. I wanted women to, to see the women that I saw growing up, and I think that was one of the inspirations for me. Did you? write this from simply sitting down and and starting to write or did you have an outline how did you begin the process of writing a novel well first i went to play and then and then i found that that was very difficult and uh and then as i read more and thought more and i began to um realize that there are all these different stories and anecdotes that needed to bring in you couldn't bring into play very easily mm-hmm. but and and also the, the historical stretch the way that the world had changed. I wanted to bring that into the the change in in from uh, from 1930s to modernity to to to, to computers. You know, just to, from the, from the icebox to the refrigerator, from the radio to the television, from pre-war to post-war, from uh, <coughs> um, a, a very close uh, neighborhoods to very scattered neighborhoods. Uh, I, uh, from from the uh, the uh, Creates the Vietnam War to to the uh, uh, Sputnik. Uh, all those th- changes that that are affecting the lives and the mores of, of the people. It's a remarkable span of time when you think of it and think of the historical significant things that did take place during that period, from say 1938 through. 2000, 2005, 2010, a lot of um, remarkable things. Did you, in your book, is there a scene in there that you think is very dramatic that will really grab the uh, attention of the reader, or is it more character-driven? Um, I think it's, I think it's sort of both, uh, in many ways. I think, I, I think it's, I think it's very character-driven, but, but, but I think, I think there's some scenes in there that, um, that that really does grab uh, 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 the reader. I think that um, you know one of the scenes is is, is, is uh, occurs after um, uh, Babe Ruth, who's, who's who's the main character, is abandoned and she's pregnant uh, with her sixth child, and um, and. Uh, and she talks to her two kids uh, about their father, father having left them. This is what she says. You know, kids, we're special. If anyone says you don't have a father, you tell him you're sons and daughters of God. He's the best father there is. He's going to be my husband, too. He put us here for a purpose. We are light on a hill put here to show that with his help, a single woman can raise six kids and raise them right. And we'll have something left over to give. I, th- I think that, that was one of the brief. Um, um, poignant moments in which she's encouraging them even though they've been abandoned they're going to do okay that's beautifully said and it's inspirational in it's content as well that's a, that's a wonderful uh, picture you've just created for the listener and for the reader is there anything that you think is unique about this book that perhaps has not been told before in story form I think that uh, it's a book that touches on the profane and the sacred. So in it, you have you have rapes and murders, uh, pillage. At the same time, you have uh, the presence of angels and and interventions to, to the child's mind of God descending to help and make a difference. 
there's this mixture of really profane gut part of life together with the sacred inner in, in, in upon it, especially in the child's mind as he sees it, and, and he, as, as, as he sees God changing things that happen, for example, he sees God, the child, one, at some point, sees the inspiration his mother receives from God, the children can sense that. And one sees that in the book. Beautifully put. The title again is Light in Winter, A Mama's Prayer, and our author, O. Henderson, Jr. Sir, where can my listeners get copies of your book? On, on, on uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Ex Libre, all those places, it, it, it's really available. Um, and some local bookstores are, are getting it now, and the, the libraries can certainly get it. But one can order online at, at www.exlibre or www.amazon or www.barnesandnobles or, or uh, uh, Schuler's in the Grand Rapids area that carries the book uh, Nicola's in the Ann Arbor area carries the book. Uh, and uh, a lot of libraries in Monroe, Michigan, libraries in Ann Arbor, uh, libraries, uh, I think, in Grand Rapids will be carrying a book also. So if, if one, one uh, Google also carries, you, you can find it on Google. So online, it's, but, but it's being going to be more and more in, in, in local bookstores. We're working on that right now. And uh, that's... That, that uh, I'm hopeful that will continue to grow. Best of luck with this book. Are you planning something in the future to do a follow-up to this story? Not a follow-up to the story, but other writings, yes. Excellent. Excellent. We look forward to talking with you again, Mr. Henderson, and thank you so much for joining me today. Again, our author, O. Henderson, Jr., the title of the book, Light in Winter, A Mama's Prayer. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.